This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Letter locking. Common traits of mythos deities. Antagonist intelligence levels. And Montague Summers. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the friendly confines of the gaming hut. And uh, I'm going to sit right down here on uh, one side of the DM screen, and I'm going to pick up my notes for the dungeon and just going to open up. Well, all right, hold on. Robin, um, I can't open these notes. I can't open them. What? Are they are they protected by a butterfly lock, Ken? They are. Or perhaps a dagger trap? Or a spiral? A double spiral? A Venetian spiral? Who can say, because exciting lingo like that is locked inside my notes. But uh, without my notes, we can still go on to answer a question from beloved Patreon backer Stephen Dosman, who suggests the use of letter locking in Elizabethan times seems worthy of investigation. How can I use letter locking intrigues in my historical or fantasy games? Yeah, letter locking. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, Stephen, well done noticing that the words in Elizabethan times mean game <laughs> material. Well done. You are correct, as always. And, uh, letter locking, obviously, big news back in the 1600s. And I guess now it's news because people at MIT have figured out, uh, that that used to go on, right? Right. So Stephen sent me, a, uh, sent us a link to an Ars Technica article by Jennifer Willett, and we've done additional 
research on top of that, of course. And uh, it comes with a cool diagram of what a letter lock is. And it was, it's so intricate that I initially thought it was like some sort of physical box that you put letters in and, and lock up. But no, it's a way of uh, folding paper intricately together, which, which you cut up so that if you open it up, you destroy little parts of the letter. So this is one level of security above the good old wax seal. So if the wax seal comes off, something tears. And that means if you, the intended recipient, get it and that stuff is already torn, you know uh, that it's been uh, looked at already, that someone has intercepted it. And some of the ways of folding, I think specifically the dagger trap, it says it self-destructs the letter. But that's a, that's a little dramatic. It tears part of the letter. It yeah, doesn't right. render it you know, invisible or, uh, you know, rip it to shreds or anything. It just, it just alerts you to the fact that, uh, that it's been, uh, read, but it's a cool detail. One of, and one of the reasons it's cool is that this extremely intricate thing would have to be physically done by the letter writer. And sometimes these are quite famous, uh, correspondence indeed. So Mary queen of Scots, uh, the night before her execution in, uh, 1587, uh, sent one to, Henry III of France, and she had a, a fancy spiral fold uh, that would cause it to rip if anybody uh, uh, else got a peek at it. Um, other famous users of the technique were Catherine de' Medici, uh, Elizabeth I, Galileo, Machiavelli. So, you know, all of your not just obscure uh, Elizabethan NPCs that you make up, but actually existing ones have used this uh, uh, fun paper technology, which was not studied that well until relatively recently, because of course, if the trap has been set, if the intended recipient opens it, that also tears the letter as well, or tears little holes or perforations. And so it's, I, I think, sort of, they have to engineer backwards to figure out how, how all of the folding would work. Yeah, the uh, the MIT team that uh, conservator Jana D'Ambrogio is apparently in charge of at letter, what is it, letterlocking.org or something like that. Cool website. Go and look at it. Uh, there's all manner of, of neat uh, terminology that you can drop into the game or turn into magical variables and cues, but they've worked out various ways of looking at the folds of the paper and if bits of it are still extant in that the little pieces got torn off, but they got saved in the same envelope or bag as the other letters, you can reassemble it and start making, you know, best guesses based on basically the geometry of, of folding planes. So de-origamifying, I guess, the or re-origamifying the unfolded letter to see how it must have been folded in the past. And now they can go to tranches of these letters that have turned up in various historical collections. For example, uh, there's a collection called the Brienne Collection, which was carried off apparently by a family of postmasters in uh, the Spanish Netherlands. So that's good fun. Uh, they're like, well, we can't open it, so we can't send it. And that's an interesting approach to being a postmaster, I guess. Uh, there's another collection called the Prize Collection, which is uh, ships taken as prizes by the British Admiralty. They had diplomatic correspondence or important correspondence on them. And uh, the captains didn't want to rip them open. So they just turned them over to the Admiralty. The Admiralty was like, well, we got the ship, probably nothing important there anyway. And so they've, um, these letters have remained unread, but the MIT team is now figuring out how to use basically computer driven x-rays to x-ray the thing, 
find all the patterns of ink, which are being metal, show up differently from the paper, and then read them without unfolding them, and then figure out a way to unfold them if that's possible at all. And right now, the argument is, well, we can read them. Why bother unfolding them? That just ruins evidence for, you know, someone a hundred years from now to say, oh, if only they hadn't unfolded the thing, we could have, you know, dusted it for goodness or whatever. So the, uh, the, the technology uh, then and now is great fun. But I will point out, you know, understandably, the MIT team is very hype on letter locking. But I will point out, Francis Walsingham was reading Mary Queen of Scots's mail. That's how she got executed. So, you know, uh, what, what a man can do in the immortal words of um, uh, Anthony Hopkins, another man can undo. So I'm sure that there were long fingered perseverance that worked for Walsingham who figured out how to untwist letters and, you know, sidle those locks back open and then refold them and send them on their way. So it's not, uh, a silver bullet necessarily, because we know historically that Walsingham was reading Mary Queen of Scots's letters, and it's not like she only letter locked the really uh, hot ones. She letter locked everything. And also, again, I feel like the MIT team is being a little excitable when they say Mary Queen of Scots's own beautiful saintly fingers must have locked this letter. Uh, Mary Queen of Scots had a staff of 50 in Fotheringay Castle. Maybe one of them was her own long fingered person who was in charge of doing the, the quite intricate letter locking that she did, because these are not just, you know, tear off a, a stub and fold it over. This is, you have to pass a piece of the paper through eight or even, you know, more than a dozen little slits in a specific way so that uh, the letter stays together and also, you know, tears correctly when you try to open it, unless you are yourself a long-fingered person. Right. Uh, and so that uh, suggests the various plot details that uh, could come into play. So you uh, have to make your long-fingered perseverant roll mm -hmm. in whatever system that is. I think most systems, that's a, a broader skill, but uh, let's leave it at that. So your filch or purloin or, or sneak or whatever it is that your GM mm -hmm. asks you to roll. And obviously, if you succeed at the roll, you're able to open the letter lock uh, and then put it back together again, which is probably just as difficult. <laughs> Even more difficult, steps. I expect, because the right. letter's... Um, the first time you're working with basically virgin paper or parchment. And the second time, I mean, anyone who's ever tried to refold anything recognizes it's never quite as easy. Right. And a mean GM will make you roll twice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or one who wants the letter to be a really crucial part of the story, I guess. Right. And otherwise, I guess if you, uh, if you lack a long fingered person or, or lack the, uh, the, the moxie to attempt it, I guess the other part of that plot point would be in order to read the letter you have to wait until the recipient gets it and opens it and then somehow get a hold of it and that could also be a fun thing too right that uh you know somehow this gets past walsingham he wants to read it and so you have to uh, infiltrate the french court uh, Henri the third's yeah. court and uh and get the letter from him after he's he's read it because he wasn't you know his perseverant was had dropsy that day or whatever. Right. Or, I mean, since he's the actual recipient, he just opens it and he's like, well, there you go. Tore the little bits off the letter, but that's cool. I'm the king of France. Right. Exactly. So he's, he's got it. He's ripped mm -hmm. it open, but you, the person who wanted to spy on him, 
didn't get to look at it in, before then. And so now you have to look at it after he's read it. Right. In his archives. And obviously you can do all of this stuff magically all the way down to the computer driven x-ray tomography, where if you have, you know, an airy spirit, you know, you're commanding a, a familiar or a, an imp or something, an angel, uh, they can peek through the, the, the letter and read it. And demons, of course, famously read secrets. So you could either have a supernaturally long-fingered imp that can open up letters and close them back, or you just have them peek through the, the paper, but that's another obstacle. And the question is, well, do I want to summon up an imp for this guy's letter? Because the more I summon an imp, the more ticked off the imp gets at me. You don't want to accumulate too many imp points. Exactly. Keep your, keep your imps dry, as it were. So, again, like all security systems, a letter lock is not 100%, but it discourages people from just, you know, on a whim, violating your, uh, your privacy in this case. And, and that's the technological social end of it, right? And that's goes, you know, from, you know, all the way, you know, back to letter locking and all the way down to, you know, modern day encryption, right? Right. Um, and once you introduce magical countermeasures, of course, that implies magical measures. So mm -hmm. in uh, a magical Elizabethan times. Or Elizabethan times, as I call it. Right. Uh, you could have, you know, something quite different that, you know, the letter technology would be, well, you need to summon the imp in order to have the ink appear at the end of the thing. So that rather than, you know, these whole measures might completely be gone in a magical universe in place of something else that would be even more effective. So, Or the imp is like contained inside the folded letter, like the folded letter geometry becomes like a genie bottle. And so when you open it, an imp shows up. And if you're not who was supposed to read the letter, well, he imps you. Yes, it's not just a... He might literally destroy the letter. It might be full self-destruct, unlike mm -hmm. in uh, a mundane setting. Or, of course, could be attack, could be, you know, he could be more than an imp. He could be a, a straight-up demon, or, yep. you know, he could be a flashbang, or, or uh, whatever that is. And so then, instead of the thief having to uh, intercept the, uh, the mail and deal with it, you need the magician to do that. And, uh, uh, again... Once he disenchants the uh, magical trap on the letter, there's a question, uh, does he re-enchant the trap on the letter successfully, or does he just have the illusion of that? There's also just that the message itself might be magically different, right? That the an ensorcelled letter could read one way to, uh, to Walsingham and his spies, and another way to the intended recipient who has, you know, the jewel uh, or the stick pin or whatever it is that allows you to correctly read... Uh, what's in the letter, meaning that the MacGuffin shifts from the letter to the stick pin, to the item that allows Henri III to, to read it. And you, you then have to steal the stick pin and you have to steal the letter. So you have something for both the thief and the magician to do. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, this sort of moves us in the direction of straight up cryptography, which is not really the burden of this. But I just wanted to put a pin in that and say, yes, we noticed codes. Um, I think one of the things that the letter lock provides in addition to excuses, is a way to signal that this letter is specific or powerful in more ways than just the GM saying, you have to get that letter. I think once you get that letter, having a letter lock on it gives you a, a cool period vibe and that sort of, you know, primitive tech vibe that I, that I think is, it's better than just saying, Oh, and a demon's on it. It, it. If you figure out how the demon is bound up in the paper or there's some extra, you know, uh, historical techie 
feel to it. I just feel like that's that's part of the fun of doing historical gaming in the first place. And it's part of the fun of doing non-contemporary gaming more broadly, because obviously you can have letter locking in, you know, Ravenloft or in some other magic land that isn't uh, proper 16th century uh, Europe. But it's it's fun to know that that this exists. It's It's like, you know, getting picky about any historical detail. I think this is the kind of picky detail that adds fun as opposed to takes it away. Right. And so it doesn't have to be an obstacle to be involved in the, uh, in your game. It could just be a cool evocative detail, but if you can figure out a way to make the plot somehow turn on that, uh, then you've, uh, I think completed your assignment or at least Stephen Dosman's assignment, uh, more thoroughly. And having completed this assignment, it's time for us to, you know, fold up our letters and head on over to uh, the next segment by way of this exciting message. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula Dossier Director's Handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. The horrible feeling that you have correlated contents. The piping of idiot flautus tell us that we've once more or i think actually technically for the first time entered the mythos hut which is really a subcategory of the horror hut but it's it's a cosmic cosmically large hut a non-euclidean hut if you will and uh, ken for the we're starting a new year and we're going to start a new series hopefully less epically long <laughs> than our <laughs> typical series but uh, i thought we would uh, dive on into the exercise of creating a new Lovecraftian deity. And so over a, a number of segments, we will step-by-step uh, step, uh, make up a cool new Lovecraftian god uh, in hopes that he might uh, someday, or it, or she, or whatever, will stand alongside the others as uh, the uh, epic uh, signs of uh, cosmic indifference uh, that we all know. And so the first step, I thought, uh, that we want to do is, if you're going to pastiche something, do it effectively, that you're going to have to find out what the elements of the existing classic 
characters are. So if you wanted to create a new character for Flash's rogues gallery of villains, you would look at Captain Cold and, and Boomerang and all of those other characters and, and you know, see what they all have in common and try to do something like that. Well, we're going to do that uh, with the Mythos God. So our first step then is to look at what are the common elements that it needs to have for people who play a scenario with this uh, deity in it or read a story for them to feel, oh yeah, this is another one of those and it, it's, uh, it fits in the existing pattern. So what, what is the first thing that they all have in common or most of them have in common? I mean, I think all of them, even the, the littlest, cutest ones, have in common that they are on such a scale as to transcend mere geometry. So what I mean is Cthulhu is described as the size of a mountain. And first of all, a mountain-sized octopus, very scary. No question there. But Cthulhu is bigger than that in the sense that the part the, the part that is the mountain-sized octopus is just the part that you immediately notice before your brain melts. Cthulhu expands beyond that. He's extends into geometries and into wavelengths and into dimensions that we can't perceive, or we can only perceive with, you know, sort of just panic fear on an animal level. We can't intellectually apprehend them. And so anything smaller than that, anything that just fits in a box is in some way, not quite a mythos deity. And of course you can go back and forth and you can parse as indeed Lovecraft even did where in the voice of his characters, he says, Oh no, Cthulhu is just a big old alien. That's cool. Nothing to worry about there, but to present as something more than just a kaiju. And again, we can bicker and argue about is Rantigoth from horror in the museum is Rantigoth just a kaiju. Is he like a bud from a mythos God or is he a God in his own right? Despite having been worshiped by the primitive pre-Lomarians. Well, primitive pre-Lomarians, quite frankly, Robin will worship anything. So <laughs> not like the later sophisticated Lomarians. No, the Lomarians were like, you have to transcend dimensionality. If we are going to worship you, we are busy people. We've got, other stuff to do. We got Pnecotic manuscripts to fragment for one thing. So uh, I think that quality of transcendence, as opposed to just being big and scary, I, I think you have to figure out some way in which that entity is more than just a kaiju that it extends, it expands. It has either a, a mythological impact. It has some extra quality besides just enormous, right? Right. And that sort of slides into the next quality, which is often described as indifference toward humanity, but it's more about they are manifestations of the vast cosmos's indifference to us. Some of them are kind of interested in us from time to time, especially if we encounter them and appear to be tasty. So really, it's more, it's not that they're indifferent so much as they are uh, anthro-decentralizing. Mm -hmm. uh, which is a word that hasn't been used to describe them because I just made that up. Yep. But it, it's they, it's well, not so much made up they, words are another stigmata of the mythos. So exactly yes, good and for us. So they are not necessarily indifferent toward us per se. They may be hostile toward us, but we are mostly not on their radar. Mm -hmm. We are not super of interest to them. And again, we're going to find little exceptions that prove the rules along the way. Uh, so Nyarlathotep seems to be interested in us in in some way as sort of a cat toy sort of thing. But even then, 
obviously it's it's not the standard relationship between a, a human and a god that this subverts even the uh, relationship in mythology between humans and evil gods uh, and so they're they're not like satan they don't they're not happy to uh, attract our interest and uh, uh, and that i guess brings us to the next point which is that they receive misdirected worship in a way that they are treated as gods by humans and humans can get some sort of twisted benefit from acts of, of worship but their interest in our worship seems to be an open question right a fundamentally unknowable one i i think that one parallel and you could look at near Orthotep this way you could look at the cthulhu dream cult this way if you imagine a wave coming up on a beach and uh, the wave hits like a, a hermit crab or something it deforms around the hermit crab. It hits the hermit crab. It's aiming at the hermit crab, but the wave did not come up on the beach to drown or molest the hermit crab. The waves coming up on the beach, the hermit crab's just in the way. So the fact that a God uh, ripples around you or foams when it hits you, or in some way responds to your attention and presence does not mean that the entire God is about you. It just means that, you know, you're one of the one of the things in its path or in its in it within its geometry suddenly and that quality of interface is i mean first of all it's what it's doing in your story at all because if it never touches humanity it's just a line somewhere and you're like oh i heard that way off on fumble hot there's a entity named groth and well done with that story and it's that moment of interface that provides what you were talking about, Robin, about the human response to that imminence that provides them either some sort of, you know, just the social ability to comprehend the disaster that's happening or because they are uh, on the wavelength of Cthulhu's dreams, they have visions that excite them or that provide them with some sort of magical lore or that generally turn them from regular old humans into special humans. And those might be cultists. Those might be priests in a society like that of the deep ones that actually worships Cthulhu, or it might just be, it, it activates your artistic influence and turns you into a, you know, one literally touched by God, as they used to say in the old days. So the, the notion of the divine sort of, you know, affecting you as it moves past does not contradict, does the divine actually care about you? And this, you know, this Melville used to say this about actual, you know, uh, Jehovah, much less about, you know, any imaginary God. His, his argument was, well, given what we've, what, what I've seen of Jerusalem, the attention of God is far from an unmixed blessing. And that was considered very, very radical to say in 1850. But it's basically what Lovecraft, in a slightly different tenor, is saying about Earth and Azathoth or whoever. Right. The next element is a less philosophical and more visual, which mm -hmm. is they are very often not just awful looking, but they are very often a sort of chimerical creatures that combine uh, different animals that we find revolting. Yeah. So Cthulhu, bat plus octopus. Durlitz's version of Haster is a horrible grub. Uh, Zathagua is uh, a toad, and then you add other stuff to it. And so the uh, form factor of the uh, horrible animal uh, or horrible hybrid animal is another uh, element that, you know, would distinguish them from other evil gods in other settings and mythologies. And again, this is, this comes from Lovecraft's literary technique of trying to 
describe something that by definition is not describable. And so what Lovecraft does is he presents things that either contrast or contradict each other. And so when he describes Cthulhu, he says, I can't describe it. But if I said it was like a, an anthropoid figure, like a person, like an octopus and like a dragon, you sort of have an idea. And similarly with Smith's Sothagawa, he's a toad, but he's also a bat. And, you know, he's not saying it's like a toad bat. He's saying that you are trying to hold both of these concepts in your head at once and failing when you perceive these things that they, that you don't just perceive them as, Oh, a bunny. You say, all right, on one hand, yes, legged, uh, rabbit like, but also somehow like uh, a hermit crab or, or whatever. And the more contradictory, generally the more dissonant you're saying that the, that the creature is. And, you know, again, literally that works well in some ways and doesn't, I would probably advise staying away from bunnies just because, <laughs> but you know, if you look at his description of the, uh, the, the creatures in the festival where he just goes bananas on it, it's like, it's a decaying human corpse and it's an insect and it's a bat and it's a vulture. And it, and it's just like, dude, just pick four. But the notion is that these, these qualities are all qualities that it's sending you and you're trying to make sense of it. It's not that if you, you know, dissected Cthulhu, you would say, Oh, look, he's an octopus man dragon. That's totally reasonable. It's that these impressions are what you are receiving and there is no way to sort them out. And, and that's sort of what Lovecraft is doing with the phrase. He's not just describing a, a fun, you know, exquisite corpse of a monster. Right. And as these beings have been more illustrated over the years and more exquisitely illustrated in a, a sort of horror realist fashion that we've gotten away from that idea that, no, this is just your best, your sense's best attempt to try and create an image of it in your head that it, that it transcends. Uh, because if you, you know, if you make a Funko pop Cthulhu, he's, mm-hmm. he's a bad octopus and that's, that's what he is. Now, is it fair to say that each of them embodies a given trait or idea, or is that just some of them do? So Sothagua is sort of clearly a sloth. Neurolepthotep is sort of a sort of a cruel playfulness. Yogg-Sothoth is a gateway between, you know, a barrier between things. Azazoth is sort of an insensate lack of consciousness. But it's not clear, you know, the big green guy himself, what he embodies specifically sort of our fear of the sea, really, I guess. I mean, that's one of the things is that the, you don't necessarily have to pick one because as you suggest, Cthulhu is on the one hand, he's the fear of the sea, you know, uh, Lovecraft famously allergic to fish. On the other hand, he's also the fear of apocalypse. You know, he is everything you think the end of the world is. Uh, And so if you're paranoid about, Global warming, maybe Cthulhu is a, you know, manifests as a giant heat wave to you in the way that, uh, to Lovecraft, it manifested as a bunch of Asian people getting above themselves. So whatever your version of the apocalypse is, that's the spore of Cthulhu because he's also is certainly in the story. He is apocalypse made manifest. So there's a lot of, of possible core concepts, probably not a lot you can put on any one of them, but any of them can contain multitudes. So Yogg-Sothoth is, as you say, he's the key in the gate, he's the interface, but he's also in a way a entity that exists 
not just to be a barrier, but to erase barriers. So he erases the barrier between uh, the stars and mankind in Dunwich. He erases the barrier between life and death for Charles Dexter Ward. So he's the thing and its opposite in a lot of ways. The key and the gate is, I guess I said. And so, or I guess Lovecraft said. So having these giant concepts, I think at the minimum they should have one, but they should ideally have more. Otherwise you get, you know, uh, Cthulhu, who is, Oh, he's, he's fire. What else? Um, still fire. Very fiery. I mean, Durleth obviously did much better with Ithaqua, uh, because he was able to borrow Blackwood's Wendigo for a lot of his core concepts that he's both cannibalism and the fear of the wild and coldness and has a, a, a sort of a, not so much a playful, but a predatory, uh, behavior. So there's a lot of, of components of bigness in Ithaqua, but Cthulhu is just, well, we need a fire elemental. Uh, Cthulhu is a cool name. Let's use that. And maybe because Durleth never, you know, bothered to write a really cool story about Cthulhu, or the Cthulhu is always a Deus Ex Machina, literally. He doesn't bother to to build that out. And I assume uh, an author could uh, turn Cthulhu into more than just he's fire. But you would have to spend some time thinking about the sorts of the sorts of emotional and uh, story impact you wanted from him. So. Something big. Is it fair to say then that the core ambiguous thing that it paradoxically embodies has to be also sort of on a philosophical plane so that our fear of fire is just, it's correct to be afraid of fire, <laughs> yeah. but it's not uh, sort of a, an existential terror, right? It's, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's just sort of physical fear, but there has to be some sort of existential unease at the heart of its ambiguous concept. I feel like for something to work, you either have to have, as you say, that existential unease or the concepts that it embodies have to be at some level large enough that they can contain their own, not necessarily their contradiction, but their own flavor. So as you say, Sathagawa is sloth. He's laziness. He's indolence. He's decadence personified in many ways. But he also, he teaches magic and he's got a sense of humor in the stories. And those are qualities, I think, partly because Clark Ashton Smith had a, a different sense of humor. And so we would put that in. And when Lovecraft addresses Sathagawa, he's more concerned with Sathagawa's lack of form, right? The formlessness of Sathagawa is the scary thing. So he's both desire and the drift of desire, if you combine both of them. And then that is just bigger than, oh, Sathagawa's a fun furry toad bat who will teach you magic or eat you, you know, roll a die 10, right? So the, so the existential fear at the center also, I think needs to give rise to something, you know, complementary or seemingly contradictory, some other element add a dimensionality to it is, I guess a long way around the barn to say that, but I right. think that's what I'm saying. So it's like a, a pliable concept of uh, paradoxical unease. Yeah. I think that's a, as good a phrase as any, certainly. Okay. So I, uh, have we left anything out? I, I think we can, we can say, you know, cosmic scale or extra dimensional scale, just as opposed to scale scale. I feel right. like we need to, you know, clarify that again, the, the line that's important is not, are you a great old one or are you an outer God? A la, you know, uh, all praises up to Sandy Peterson, but the line is, are you a Kaiju or are you a God? Right. That's the, that's the important line. And then I guess the, the last thing is you probably, although this is not necessarily a million percent, 
your name needs to sound unhuman or not recognizably from some tradition. And obviously, Nodens and Dagon can both be adduced, but those are more the familiar human mask that we've known and loved over the actual entity. So either you have to have a, a inhuman name or your human name has to be pregnant with mythic significance and is clearly a mask. I, w- I would say that's what has to happen to you, right? So this gives us six bullet points to work on in the next uh, segment uh, next week. We've got cosmic scale. We've got anthro decentralizing. We've mm-hmm. got that it receives worship or has some sort of human interface. It is indescribable, uh, leading us to have to grope for a animal hybrid metaphor to describe it. It has a pliable concept, a paradoxical unease, and an inhuman name. Uh, so uh, next week, we'll uh, open up the Mythos Hut again, and we'll look at what is missing in the current roster of deities that we... Well, what gap is there that this new creation of ours will fill? But uh, that that's next week, and uh, just in mere seconds from now, there's another segment coming right up. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive through. Protect this podcast from seal-tearing self-destruction by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Carl McKee! Darren Dumay! Robert Dean! Chris Lydon! And Patrick Joint! The keys chuttering on the IBM Selectric, the bourbon gurgling into the jelly jar... Welcome us once more to that most annoyingly titled of huts, where we learn how to write good. And today, we are discussing writing good by providing character quality, specifically the character quality of being smart, which, while it's great fun to write your hero into, is always sort of a juggling act with the bad guy. So, what is the thing we need to know about making our bad guy smart. And I will just, before we do this, I will jump ahead and say, it seems like it's easy to write the hero smart, but it doesn't happen very often. (laughs) And certainly it doesn't happen very often in film. I'm always very excited when a movie, uh, our protagonist's actual superpower, he's legitimately smarter than other people. You you know, Charlie Varick, you know, and uh, Miller's Crossing almost stand alone as films in which the guy's actual power 
not, you know, just super soldierness or grit or gumption is no, he's legitimately smarter than everyone else on screen. And not just because he's, you know, written by the, you know, by the author, he's the author's pet, uh, Batman at his best is that kind of character. But again, how smart is the Joker? Is the Joker just crazy? Does the Joker have a plan? Is not having a plan the only way you can be smarter than the Batman? That's the question that we're asking. You know, does Sherlock Holmes need a Moriarty or can he just get his yayas out by, you know, thwarting the occasional bad baronet or mistaken uh, husband, right? Right. And we, we both observed that plotting has become a bit of a lost art, that the <laughs> admirable focus on character uh, that is part of a modern a genre and procedural writing uh, has come at the expense of some plotting. And to write your hero smart, you have to write a smart plot for him to figure out. Yeah. And so if you start with a series of emotional beats that you want to hit and move the character through those, you will often have a more contemporary style of plotting where you wind up throwing in a bunch of contrivances in order to get the character through, through A to B to C to D. And so the question of whether they're smart or the antagonists are smart kind of goes by the wayside. So yes. they're, they're both in this story. So no one is smart. <laughs> right. And I don't want to just talk about idiot plotting this time around because we've talked about it before, but in reality, uh, people who do bad things are often stupid and irrational and foolish. Yeah. I mean, Elmore Leonard has got an entire genre based on that theory. Exactly. And he's the one I think who does it well because, and he's a great model for this in that he will kind of, you can tell that he has gone through this process in his novels of deciding which of his characters are smarter than others, which of the antagonists, because there's generally multiples of them. Mm -hmm. And also what are they driven by? That when they do stupid things, when they make rash mistakes that get them into trouble and expose them to the protagonist and to justice in the subset of Leonard novels where there is such a person, mm -hmm. why they make that mistake. So the mistake seems like a credible outgrowth of their psychology rather than a convenient error that they're making in order to make the story easier and simpler for you, the author, to write. So you want to make sure that you avoid moments where the character is doing an obviously implausible dumb thing that seems out of character for them. And the number one thing that makes action seem implausible is that they're very convenient to the plot. And so if you're looking at, you know, instructions not to have idiot plotting, the real point there is not that people aren't ever idiots. You would not have a memetic fiction in any way if you create a world without idiots. Right, yeah. But that they're... Idiocy isn't just obviously there to establish your narrative for you. It, it isn't just having explained my plan, I will now leave you tied up in this basement where surely you will die sort of level. And, you know, again, that works while it does. But while it does is if your reader is 12 or if the narrative is so short that that's the only thing you need to do is, is hop over that beat and you're done. The question of why would your mastermind do that kind of thing needs, as you say, to come out of the mastermind psychology and the question of how smart they are or what they apply their smarts to also comes out of that because a mastermind, a, a bad guy, uh, let's move out of the mastermind space, but a, a bad guy who believes that they are, you know, unfairly oppressed by society is going to make different mistakes than a bad guy who is ridiculously overconfident because they were, you know, given everything they wanted. They were spoiled rotten as a child, right? So that's two different sets of, of bad guys, either of which might be smart or either of which might 
make a dumb mistake, but their dumb mistakes are going to vary because of their psychology. So it's not a, a question of, well, my bad guy has 150 IQ, so he'll be smarter than everybody. That's not how it works. Smarts is not lines on the side of the measuring cup. A lot of it is, what have you filled the measuring cup with? Is he, you know, uh, is he the kind of idiot whose measuring cup is full of wine or the idiot whose measuring cup is, you know, full of oil, right? Those are two different questions. Right. And if you are setting up some of the uh, antagonists to be uh, smarter or, or less smart than others, one way that that works very well, the opposite of idiot plotting, is creating moments in which the protagonist intelligently takes advantage of the character flaws and mistakes of the antagonist. So that if the antagonist does something stupid so that the plot works, that's one thing. But if they are provoked to do something stupid by the intelligence of the protagonist, that is great. That is aces, right? That makes yeah. the hero seem smart and it makes the uh, mimetic rashness or irrationality or just plain dumbness of the antagonist uh, seem like a part of the real world and seem like a a success like an upbeat for uh, the hero. So you want the hero taking advantage of the mistakes made by the rash or dumb characters. You do not want the author taking advantage, especially right. to get the hero into more trouble that they then have to get out of. Or, as you pointed out earlier, creating a obvious cheat way for the hero to get out of a problem. So, you know, if the mistake is just, oh, and then I left you in my death trap. That's less satisfying. But it's mm -hmm. like, if I take advantage of your obvious insecurity to get you to blurt out a confession, that's, you know, classic mystery uh, hero right there. Mm -hmm. I, I think that one of the sort of standard formats or structures anyway, is you have our, our bad guy and they do something and our hero is smart and he figures out how to beat that thing. But the bad guy was also smart. He realized the hero would do that. And so the hero actually solving a problem, it's not that he was foolish to do that, but he solves the problem and by doing so puts himself in a position for the bad guy to take advantage. So uh, as you say, where a hero recognizes the psychology of the villain, that's satisfying. If the villain has taken the hero's behavior patterns or psychology into account, that's a more satisfying bad guy turn. And you see uh, Doyle does that occasionally badly in Sherlock Holmes, where the bad guy hires Sherlock Holmes because that way no one will suspect them of being the real killer. And maybe that works the first time anyone ever hired Sherlock Holmes, but it becomes a idiot plot when Doyle does it, you know, the fifth and sixth time. But for the bad guy to do something, knowing that the hero will, you know, rush blindly in to save the fair Marguerite or brilliantly destroy his foes and thus open him up to, you know, uh, obloquy or whatever that is satisfying because it's the same thing that would satisfy you if the hero did it. It's just done on the other hand. Right. So the, the bad guy doing to the hero, what we want the hero to do to the bad guy inherently is, I think a satisfying solution because it feels asymmetrical, but B, Within the universe of the book, it feels realistic, right? Right. Another thing you want to look out for is villain plans that don't make sense or don't have a chance of succeeding or that switch objective midway through. Uh, these are all unsatisfying in different ways. And so you want at least one of your antagonists to have been smart enough to put into action something 
that could have conceivably worked. Yeah. And uh, it's surprising sometimes how many, uh, particularly, again, film plots where they're clearly trying to connect up different emotional beats uh, work that way, where what the villain is trying to do is like either couldn't possibly succeed even in this universe or is too confusing to, to figure out. And again, uh, there are lots of cases of people in real life doing utterly stupid things that are doomed to fail. But that's one area where you have to sort of depart from pure mimesis to having, you know, you pick the villain with the plan that might possibly succeed and therefore mm. is available to the understanding of the reader. Because if only the bad guy in his disordered thinking understands how this is supposed to work, you can do that. But then the question before the protagonist can't be, what is the plan? Uh, so the protagonist would then have to realize pretty early that this person is just not on our wavelength at all and not attempting a plan that can succeed. You have to put that right, right up front. Mm -hmm. And then the question is not, you know, how do I thwart the plan? But, you know, how do I find them? Or how do I get this uh, piece of information that allows me to put them away? Or And that is taking you, I think, more into thriller territory than, than anything with a kind of a investigative element. I mean, that said, that thriller model has historically, you know, from, you know, the 19th century, it has privileged the bad guy's brilliant plan. And I think the, the canonical example that we all think of is Die Hard, where right. there is a great plan. Gruber has an amazing plan. It just keeps hitting that annoying piece of grit that is John McClane. That's what all the best Jack Reacher books are. That's what half of the good crime fiction is. Anything where there's an elaborate heist and our hero is just, you know, lucks his way into thwarting it or dumbs his way or grits his way into thwarting it. That's also a very satisfying story. And it's even more satisfying because you realize, yeah, Gruber could beat McLean 10 times out of 10 in chess. But sadly, he brought a chessboard to a fistfight. And now, and, and now our hero, thank goodness, doesn't need his fancy pants smarts to solve it. He just has to be just smart enough, smarter than the, uh, generally in bad writing, the obvious foil who's too dumb to see it or, or in fun writing anyway, Die Hard again is full of uh, law enforcement guys who don't see the plan. And that's part of the fun of McLean having figured it out, but he figures it out not by virtue of his smarts, but by virtue of having a, a closer look at the plan, a, a more privileged viewpoint, if you will. And I think that's a really good story structure is if you have come up with a really great, clever, brilliant plan for your bad guy to be doing, then your hero has sort of in, in a way, a lot of ways to, to screw it up. And you just decide which one fits the personality and the psychology of your hero because your bad guy, you know, they, I mean, for goodness sake, they worked out the perfect uh, robbery. And now this idiot is, is, is bumbling around ruining it's it for the them. X factor, just messing exactly. With it. And, and that's the other thing about in a thriller format where you are, the protagonist is trying to stop something from happening in the future. The plan has to be smart in order for there to be stakes, in order for you to worry that the bad guy is going to succeed, that they have to have a smart plan. Mm -hmm. And the other side of that is the whodunit structure, where the protagonist is trying to unravel something bad that has happened in the past and establish who did it and bring them to justice. That sense of brilliant planning doesn't necessarily have to be in place, right? McGray, for example, doesn't encounter a lot of criminal masterminds. He encounters ordinary people who've committed crimes for the reasons that people right. actually commit crimes in uh, real life. 
And he is smart to figure out what's going on. And they were doing things that were rational given their motivations and their uh, desires, but they don't have to be criminal masterminds in order for us to be satisfied that McGray finds them. And in a lot of cases, McGray knows who did it and the uh, reader knows who did it. And it's more of a, how does he prove it? And that is, you know, just as satisfying, especially if the person is then making countermeasures to, you know, avoid being uh, caught or what have you. Yeah. And and, uh, even, you know, more plot centric writers than Simonon can get away with a, a villain that is not, you know, hyper intelligent. You know, most John Dixon Carr locked room mysteries are not problems because the villain was such a genius. It's because, you know, something happened to make it look like a locked room, something, you know, some normal set of circumstances has left you with this seemingly impossible puzzle. Now in Carr, there are a lot of people who have figured out the perfect locked room murder and do it. And then our genius has to stop them. And it becomes more of a, a duel of wits, but the duel of wits, you know, the universe is cussed enough that, you know, it can, it can take a, a Dr. Fell or a McGray to untangle just normal people being screw ups, <laughs> but somehow turning it into a problem that it takes a genius to, to unscrew. Right. Right. And finally, if you spend time, with the uh, antagonists, and there's more than one of them, and th- that the you know scenes revolve around them without the protagonist present, uh, it absolutely makes sense to decide who's the smartest person in the room. Is the smartest person in the room the one who's actually in charge? And uh, what levels of smart do uh, the characters have? If you have multiple antagonists in your story, it also makes sense to think about what they are smart at. You might have uh, one person who's you know expert and capable in the world of tradecraft, but not particularly great at figuring people out and uh, one uh, vice versa. They can give them sort of different areas of uh, specialty. You can have someone who's uh, not uh, very smart, but they're persistent and that's why they get through or they have a position of advantage and, uh, you know, their desperate moves have always paid off in the past and, and that's why they are where they are. So you can also decide what sorts of intelligence people have, you know, he has technical intelligence. He has people intelligence. Uh, this guy uh, has sort of a sixth sense and some luck, however you want to define it. And that will also affect their interrelationships and how they sit in the power hierarchy and how stable that hierarchy of power is. And so those things can all give the hero something to leverage, even though his opponents are smart, right? He knows that this person is, good at technical stuff, but not good at people. They can lure him into a people situation. Right. And establishing, you know, that's why I think, you know, starting with, I guess, uh, Morel in the seventies, you started seeing the, the character and psychology of the bad guy becoming a standard part of a thriller in the way that it kind of didn't used to before then. Part of that is just because books could be longer, but part of it is also, I think, bleed over from more highfalutin literature of character those expectations began to trickle, if only through the writers, not necessarily through the readers, into things like thriller plots, where we now have to know enough about the bad guy besides just he's bad, he's a nobleman, he thinks he's smarter than Sherlock Holmes, we're done. That's literally all we needed to know about this guy. Uh, we have to move into 
what makes them tick? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? What do they like at home? So that the duel with them can feel emotionally satisfying and uh, dramatically satisfying on that level. Right. And, and well, Kim, the thing is, is that the hero has daddy issues <laughs> and the villain also has daddy issues. And that's why they all do what they're going to do. Well, that's what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do, which is shut the book. And <laughs> now that I've shut the book, I guess we uh, can put it on the shelf and go listen to a lovely ad. Maybe move into another hut. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF or in standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detweller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivy, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kali Gotti, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness, vandalism of a family home, twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass, a woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex Oblivione, crazed words scrawled at a crime scene, hint at Yohannath Lai and the sea. The child, a traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. It's time once more to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. We'll pause on the landing to give a friendly hello to the uh, painting of the fire salamander that awaits at the top. He's got that sly, fiery grin on his face. And we're going to head on in to the Edwardian parlor of the consulting occultists. And this time we do so at the behest of estimable Patreon backer Michael David Jr., who wants to know about Montague Summers. Uh, so this is a 20th century English eccentric and writer and editor and scholar and probably or maybe not practitioner of the occult, certainly a believer in whatever movie he appears in as a, uh, I hope, secondary character. I think these days he might be played by Toby Young. And uh, he's got a, a big, long pedigree and has uh, a long shadow in both the overtly fictional world of uh, uh, horror literature and also uh, the uh, supposedly believable world of horror nonfiction. Ken, tell us about Montague Summers. Montague Summers is one of those guys, and I feel like this is going to be praising with faint dams. I, a million percent, would trust Montague Summers over Aleister Crowley, but I think I would rather <laughs> hang out with Aleister Crowley than with Montague Summers. Oh, dear. 
<laughs> that is not, that is a, a double non-endorsement. Yeah. Summers is skeevy. I just have to say that right up at the yes, top. And if you're, if you're skeevy and the other guy in the room is Alistair Crowley. Mr. Crowley. Yeah. yeah. It, it's a situation. Anyhow, um, he's born in 1880. Uh, his family is wealthy, uh, evangelical Anglicans. If that was apparently a thing in 1880. So he resolves to go into the, the clergy, attends Oxford, gets a fourth class degree. I'm not the expert on Oxford, but that doesn't sound good. Uh, goes to a not terrific seminary, Litchfield, which was a sort of a, a seminary mill meant to churn out priests for the industrial cities of Britain, gets his MA there, uh, is described at that time by an author on him as a ritually scrupulous and dandyish postulant, which I think is a, a great tag to put on him. Uh, in 1907, he writes a book of decadent gay occult poetry called Antonus and Other Poems. He also writes puppet shows. So already the threads of his character are spreading out. He's ordained an Anglican deacon in 1908. He is uh, sent to Bath where he complains that the rectorate is haunted. He then goes to Bristol and then he goes on trial or is uh, brought up for trial on molestation charges and he skips to the continent to avoid the scandal. Right. And and he's sort of unconvincingly acquitted. Yeah. He's a, acquitted in the way that, you know, it's like, well, it would be a bigger scandal if we convicted him. So just don't be an Anglican priest anymore and we'll call it good. So he converts to Catholicism, which is his solution. To <laughs> Nothing this. bad will happen from here on out. No, right. Everything's fine. And now we begin to enter a sort of a question marky period of his life where he claims that he was ordained as a priest, but no one has ever seen the actual document proving it. And so the, the people with straight faces say, well, maybe he was ordained in Belgium, or maybe he was ordained by the extraordinarily conservative bishop of Parma. Or by a wandering bishop. Or <laughs> by a wandering bishop who just showed up one day. And uh, we well, don't well, know. No wandering bishops are a thing. They, they are they, a thing. but They were a thing, uh, as, it, as it turns out. But whether or not they were you know, what the Pope would call Catholic is a whole different question. Or, or whether the Pope would call them a bishop. <laughs> or would call them a, that's an even bigger question, yeah. and one that's easier to answer, because the answer is always no. Uh, then there's also, he sort of would hint that he'd been at black masses, and lots of people would say, oh yeah, Montague Summers was always trying to get me to a black mass, but I think it was just because he wanted to take my pants off. And that is sort of a thing that consumed him, or was what he was doing during this sort of mystery period of his life. When he comes back to England, he can't become a priest in London because the Bishop of Southwark, a guy named uh, Father Anglo, the guy who first gave him his tonsure and said, good for you, Montague, thanks for converting, is now uh, possibly having read the molestation trial, was like, no, we do not need that. So he became a school teacher. He taught Latin at grammar schools, and he began to work on the Restoration Theater and uh, the Gothic, and became a member of the British Society for the Study of Sex Psychology. So, again, nothing you can put your finger on and say bad, but everyone who knew him during this period was sort of like, uh, not good. So, the I think the sort of most reasonable theory, which is not to say the correct theory, is that he did, in fact, get into a really skeevy scene involving people you, that you would meet on the street or worse at church and recruit into being in a black mass so that you could have sex with them. And then 
rebelled against that because what we know him as is uh, for his book, The History of Witchcraft and Demonology, which he writes in 1926. His editor is also a member of the British Society for Study of Sex Psychology. So maybe they met at a meeting. And he says, if only I knew someone who knew something about demonology. And Summers is like, yes. (laughs) And in the history of witchcraft and demonology, he begins the thesis that will mark his work ever after, which is witches are absolutely real. They are absolutely servants of Satan. The church was right to burn them. And that was his ongoing belief. Satan is getting stuff done. He does not just work through socialism the way that, that everyone knew. He also works through witchcraft and deviltry of all kinds and magic. And it was this straightforward embrace of what was seen then and to some extent now as medieval superstition that gave him that specifically gothic vibe that he had. And he leaned into it. He would wear 18th century garb. He wore a clerical garb complete with the big flowing cape and the, and the big soutane hat. And he had his hair cut or styled to resemble a monk's tonsure. He used to walk in and out of the British library with a big folder under his arm labeled vampires to impress people. He very much leaned into, I'm a figure out of time. I'm a gothic vampire hunter, a witch hunter from the past. And I just happened to be in this decadent modern era saying Satan is up to stuff, but he was still creepy as hell. And Again, you can bicker and argue back and forth. What was he serious? I think that there's no reason to say he was not serious. If he wasn't, he certainly, he lived his cover forever. Anyway, the witchcraft and demonology book, huge bestseller. He is able to quit his job as a teacher and become a full-time writer and scholar. He is simultaneously, by the way, doing yeoman work on the restoration theater, getting into huge fights with restoration scholars. So it's not just the occult that makes him fight you. He fights everybody. Uh, he founded a, a society to stage restoration plays and then got mad at all the people in his theater group and quit that, uh, which is again, like every theater group. And he also got in a feud with a Jesuit named Herbert Thurston, who was sort of trying to make his career of saying, now Catholicism, you may think it's medieval and scary, but it's actually just a religion. Like you might have around the home <laughs> any day. And here comes vampire boy. And uh, so Thurston and Summers, get into it. Uh, Summers then sort of raises the stakes by translating and editing the Malleus Maleficarum, the the book of witch hunting, the witch hunter's manual, and saying, gosh, this is the best book that was ever published. It's a shame the church doesn't hunt out witches or faint hearts like Herbert Thurston, S.J., and that sort of above the uh, above the fold, I think a little bit of a problem. Yeah. Well, if, if you want to be accused of something in you know, 1920, not being a witch burner. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty good one. It's a, it's fine. And Thurston, I don't know that he took it in good part, but he tried not to, it, it's not quite a one-sided fight, but Thurston really didn't want to even be in the same newspaper column yes. as Montague Summers for obvious reasons. So he also in 28 writes the other book that I think everyone knows of his, the vampire, his kith and kin, which is literally the first book in English of vampirology. Before then, you had to read in a bunch of different tomes. You had to translate Dom Calmet. There was no one place that you could, if you were a English speaker, find out cool stuff about vampires. Sabine Beringold had written the big book of werewolves. That was solved. But vampires, that was weird and mysterious. And it's odd, again, that it took until 1928 for someone to do it. But love him or hate him, 
Summers is the guy that did it. And people, you know, they, they niggle as they should. Some of his Latin is not correctly sourced. Some of his data are questionable. The part where he says vampires are real and the devil made them again, probably philosophically not helpful, but again, he was the guy doing the work. And I have much of my love for Summers comes in the fact that he was doing the work and no one else was. Vampire also contains maybe a little bit of self-confession where he uh, writes, another fact that must be borne in mind is that the vampire was often a person who during life had read deeply in poetic lore and practiced black magic. Now, poets become vampires was not a thing before (laughs) Summers. It's barely a thing after that, uh, Tim Powers notwithstanding. But as a sort of a hidden confession of I got up to some bad stuff I'm not proud of, It kind of reads that way to me. In 1929, he writes The Vampire in Europe. He meets Crowley for the first time. They get along great. They are buddies. (laughs) Reflects poorly on both of them. They do not hang out, but they definitely, they love to then name drop each other. And I feel like it's very much a, you know, when, when Kaylee Cuoco dated Superman for like a week, I feel like it's that sort of manufactured friendship in a way. But they definitely, you know, in their, in their letters to other people, they, they played up their various similarities and vibes. He edited a ton of witch hunting manuals. And then finally, uh, in 1934, his publisher, a, a fellow named R.A. Caton, who sounds like a, a piece of work himself, he used to publish those books uh, because he ran a pornography house. And so he would have Summers translate them and definitely leave in the part where you have sex with devils and maybe, you know, do an illustration of that. And uh, he would also have Summers translate straight up pornography. I never believed that this occult text was real until. <laughs> until someday. Yes, I summoned up a succubus. And and so, Caton finally gets himself arrested for uh, for porn and his books are banned. He's driven out of business. And so, that is sort of a, a, a speed bump for, for Summers' publishing career. So he switches to the newspapers. Does a great job there. He writes The Werewolf in 33. In 1934, he meets our, our man, friend of the podcast, Dennis Wheatley. Dennis Wheatley is doing research for his black magic books. Summers is the man. So he writes, uh, introduces himself. Summers says, yo, come up to the house. We'll hang out. You, the missus, it'll be fun. Wheatley and the missus get to Summers' house. They do not like it. Summers maybe is having one on on Wheatley. He tells him an anecdote as a actual anecdote of Summers's career that is based on a ghost story by, I think, R.F. Benson. And Wheatley doesn't catch it, which is funny. But Wheatley then gets the last laugh. He fakes a problem with the kids, leaves the house early, and then tells everyone that Summers keeps enormous spiders in his house. And then to pay it off, he turns Summers into Canon Copley's style into the devil a daughter. So he, he gets something out of it, like a writer. Research. Yep, exactly. It's all tax deductible. Around this time, uh, Summers asked uh, for a description of his hobbies. And I want to know who goes up to Montague Summers and says, tell us your hobbies, Montague Summers. But he says, my chief recreations are travel, staying in unknown monasteries and villages in Italy, pilgrimages to famous shrines, investigations of occult phenomena, research in hagiology, liturgy, and mysticism, and talking to intelligent dogs, that is, all dogs. And, you know, again, 
This is the sort of reason that I can't quit Montague Summers because that's just a fun yeah, pressy. He throws in a little we rate dogs. Exactly. He has a pet dachshund named Cornelius Agrippa, and he used to walk him. You know, again, you imagine a guy dressed as an 18th century priest holding a big book of vampires walking a dachshund. Doesn't that make it better? I think it does. <laughs> At one point, he had sort of, I don't want to say groupies, but people who were into Montague Summers and would follow him and he would mysteriously vanish which was great fun. I assume it was just took off the cape <laughs> and picked up the dog and then you couldn't see him. Writes a couple of books at the tail end of his life. Uh, dies in 1948. He has refused a Requiem Mass on the grounds of see everything about Montague Summers. And uh, he leaves all of his uh, library, uh, which is vast and full of occult works, all of his personal papers, all of his objets d'art, to his longtime companion and live-in secretary. But sadly, the probate takes forever because one assumes Summers does not keep a particularly orderly set of books. Right. And a probate goes on forever regardless. Even even when things are normal. So the poor guy dies before he can collect on the estate. So his heirs, who are from Canada, come to Britain to sort it out, spend an ungodly amount of time doing that. The heir then dies. So if you're looking for... The giant spider curse, I feel like it is harassing his poor live-in staff and their brother. So some of the papers, they, they all went missing after that. Some of them have turned up in Manitoba, others still gone. Uh, there was apparently a robust underground collector's market in Summerziana, and one assumes all of his classy old-school porn may have had something to do with it. But that was his life and career. He basically puts the proper a naked sexy witch into everybody's mind so he in in many ways is the most important figure in the pagan revival because without getting naked and sexy there's no point in it certainly dennis wheatley some say plagiarizes i think that's maybe extreme but certainly borrows a great deal of reference material from summers so dennis wheatley's black magic books do in fiction what summers is doing in ostensible nonfiction, and he's the reason that we, A, know anything about vampires, and B, know that witches get up to business in the altogether. And that's really our man Summers. And again, give the devil his due, thought Margaret Murray was not just wrong, but a laughably bad scholar, and said so throughout his career when he could very easily have played up to it. So, you know, again, don't stay in his house, don't eat his food, don't touch his spiders, but I got I to gotta give him two cheers for Montague Summers, as weird and creepy as he may have been. Right. And his influences on later pop culture? Yes, obviously. Um, there's the whole energetic vibe that I talked about, but he has been specifically called out as an influence by figures as diverse as Stephanie Meyer and Guillermo del Toro, both of whom read his uh, vampire books very early, possibly because of the probate, they were all out of copyright in America. And a former communist occultist named, I think, Morton had a, a sort of a cheap line of, of reprints called University Books and reprinted as much summers as he possibly could. And I think probably half the summers on my shelf are University Books reprints, the other half being Dover reprints, which again, noticed, oh, out of copyright, eh? Full of sex, eh? Let's make it happen. So, so th they really blew up. They were another big seed in the American occult revival in the 60s because of the vagaries of British copyright law. And one expects because of the vagaries of Summers's estate and his publisher being uh, sued into non-existence by the British government. Right. So, during his period of flourishing, that takes you all the way from Call of Cthulhu to Trail of Cthulhu, 
And then right up to the war, so also a wartime Knights Black Agents prequel. So in any of those, he can be the source that you need to go to for information, even if it's not in his books. It uh, might be in his his vast library, or there might be things he was reluctant to write in. So he can be an informant uh, character who... uh, might leave you uh, nearly as disquieted as uh, whatever it is that uh, that you're hunting. So uh, he would also obviously fit right into any sort of uh, Bookhounds of London uh, series. So Oh, yes, very much so. And, of course, he has a weird high-piping voice, which fits you into your Lovecraft space. And also, I feel like if Yagalanak is a thing... Summers may have read a couple of revelations of Glocky, if you know what I mean. So is there anything beyond that? I guess for extra points, you could have a mystery that involved restoration drama. And then mm-hmm. only partway through the characters realize it has this occult uh, connection because, uh, you know, the temperamental stage director uh, with his weird dachshund, uh, there's something else going on with him. And and again, because he's, if you have a, uh, a notion that the play uh, King in Yellow exists throughout the timeline, Certainly, the 1895 King in Yellow is the sort of thing that Summers might have been drawn to during his amateur theatricals era, or he might have turned up a a restoration era version of the King in Yellow that was banned for the stage, even by Charles II. And uh, he's turned it up because one of the things that he would do in his theater company is put on plays that were banned because... Montague Summers, for goodness sake. So he would uh, stage them. And you can imagine him attempting to stage the King in Yellow in 1924. And that that is what actually broke up the Phoenix Playhouse, his his theater group. Right. And of course, that's at a time when the you still have to get approval from government censors in the UK to put anything on stage, which goes Mm -hmm. even past his death. Right, but that wouldn't have stopped Montague Summers. Oh, goodness, no. no. (laughs) (laughs) And and so we we have, um, I, I feel like, you know, creepy books, creepy behavior, naked witches. I mean, vampires. Montague Summers is everywhere you want to be, and he's just there making it creepy. <laughs> it's like, oh, we just want to get naked and have succubuses. And it's like, oh, but Montague Summers is here. Now it feels bad. And I feel like he, his job, as you suggest, is to harsh the vibe, whether you are bookhounds who are just trying to sell porn or investigators trying to stop vampires the fact that you have to deal with montague summers should always be the the skeeviest part of your day right so before you introduce him make sure you have a sense ahead of time what leads your players to reach for the x cards uh, they might want to erase them entirely from the game and that might uh, interfere with your plotting so have a sense of your audience and their tolerance level before you uh, bring him on stage in any way shape or form but he certainly, you know, if you're looking for someone to have a, a rare book of witch hunting that you need to, you know, find the special means of dispatch for some monster or to have a, a contact in the, in the creepy uh, occult world or the creepy book world, he can be your guy. He opens doors for you. And finally, you know, if you're hunting vampires, you're doing so with the blessing of Montague Summers, and that should worry you, quite frankly. Yeah, he might have a special stake you need. Well, on that note... <laughs> It's time for us to uh, head on out of here, and we'll be back uh, next week with more of the similar, including uh, part two of our uh, Build a uh, Lovecraftian Deity series. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Save this podcast from reprisals of indifferent yet somehow angry mythos deities by joining such backers as... Alan McSager. Benjamin Rawls. Jacob Ansari. Jamie Twine and John W.S. Marvin wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin with such cozy designs as excuse me while I nap this out on Twitter he's at Kenneth Height and he's at Robin D. Laws see you next time and once again we will talk about stuff